Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Welcome to What Are You Doing Here? Thanks to AATC, Australasian Academy of Tennis Coaches, providing quality coach education across the globe. Courses delivered by industry leaders and tennis business owners. Learn locally. Coach globally. Internationally endorsed. Inquire and enrol at aatc.tennis. So you're at home six to eight months. You've turned down Marcelo Rios. He was already number one when you got the offer? No. Okay. No. Okay. That would have been really hard to turn. But you knew he was good. Yeah, he. I think he was. I think he was top ten. Okay. At the time, so here I am turning down a job with a guy in the top ten. Yeah, you're dealing in the rare. I thought those were a dime a dozen. (laughs) (laughs) Working with guys in the top ten. Yeah. So I'm home and I'm doing this clinic with a buddy of mine that's uh, that's the director of tennis at this country club in in town and stuff, you know, and and uh, yeah, and you start, you know, you're feeding balls to kids that are. (laughs) <laughs> going to be lucky if they make their high school team. Yeah. And, you know, you start questioning, like, what am I doing out there and stuff? You know, that's that's where the existential crisis parts yeah, come in. You yeah. Know? Yeah, and then I, I actually got a call from a guy named Jonathan Stark. Okay. And unless you're a big tennis fan, you probably won't remember Jonathan Stark. But, uh, you know, we, we call him Starkey. Um, great American guy, played uh, amongst those junior programs that I was involved with yep. previously. And he was in Stockholm at the time, called me from Stockholm and said, I always remember the words that he used. He said, uh, he said, man, I'm just absolutely floundering in my game. <laughs> just don't know what I'm doing. Okay. You know, would you be willing to help me? Starkey was a guy that, you know, had not had a top 10 career, you know, or, yep. or a really great career necessarily. Mm-hmm. Made some good money, but nothing great, you know. And so we came to an agreement that was a lot less money than what I was getting paid by Andre Medvedev or, sure. or Jim Courier. Yeah. But, um, but you liked him personally? Great guy. Yeah. I mean, just super fun guy to work with, hard worker. And I was, again, it put me in a position after having gone through that yep. where, you know, I really wanted to get back out on the tour and prove myself. I was about to say, and your headspace <coughs> is probably a bit different after not having a job for six to eight months. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was late in the year, you know, because he was coming off of Stockholm. What year? Must have been 95, okay. I think, somewhere. Yeah, early. I mean, yep. maybe that was the end of 94. Okay. Uh, no, it must have been the end of 95, I think. Yeah, yeah, okay. It must have been the end of 95. Yep. So, yeah, so we start working together and, you know, kind of reorganized what he was doing within his game. Starkey was a big, big server, had a yep. very, very heavy serve, mm-hmm. and was an attacking style tennis player, and he'd kind of gotten away from that yep. in the course of working with some different people. And, and uh, I I mean, if, if John hears this, I don't, I, you know, Take this with a sense of love, but I, I proudly say that I worked with a guy that had the worst ground strokes in the history of professional <laughs> tennis because his groundies were pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, he was he just wasn't great from the back of the court. The strength in his game, you know, was him coming forward and putting pressure on guys, and he was a. And the pride comes from the results you made despite this. Exactly. Right? <laughs> okay. You know, is that that we we made some adjustments in his game. We did some things, and you know, when I started working with him, he was ranked about. I think 95, somewhere in that, between 90 and 100. He was in the 90s. Yep. He had been as high as 35 or so okay. at that time, but but that was a little bit, you know, before. Um, by mid-February, he played, 
he had done really well at the Memphis tournament the previous year. And we went to Memphis, he lost first round. And his ranking dropped outside the top 100. He was about 115, 120. Okay. So that was kind of the bottom of the barrel for him. Which is danger, right? Because yeah. the, the big the big one, and people that don't know, the big one, but the difference basically between top 100 and not top 100, it's more important these days than those days because of the money, is that you can play the Grand Slams. 100%. If you're inside 100%. the top 100, main yeah. draw Grand Slams, right? And as well as all the other bigger tournaments also. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you're playing qualies. Yeah. Um, you're, you're on the edge of being a, a periphery kind of player. Right. You know, and obviously that affects your bottom line. Yeah. You know, so, you know, in the end... You're trying to make a living, yes, as well as trying to be the best tennis player you can of be. Of course, yeah. So, so yeah, that put him in a tough position, and he finished that year 65 in the world mm-hmm. and won a title. Great year, unbelievable year. Yeah. So pretty proud. That I look back on it and I and I say, at this point in my career, I would say that there are probably four things that really stand out is that I consider to be my greatest accomplishments in coaching tennis. One is that I, I got Fresno State to be a, a nationally top 25 ranked team in the country. Okay. Uh, when I started there, they had never been higher than third in their conference. Okay. So we ended up my last year 16 in the country. Two was working with Jim and the titles and him getting number one. Three, these are in chronological order, was Jonathan Stark. Okay. Actually, you know, which is, I think that's something that occurs a lot in our sport is that no one really paid attention to or cared that much about Jonathan Stark getting to 65 in the world. Right. But from where he was and the headspace that he was in when we first started working together, for him to win a title, he only won two titles in his career, Yeah. and to finish that year 65 was a massive accomplishment. That was number three, and my number four would probably be 2018 with Kevin. Okay. Hopefully there'll be a number five with Tommy. 2018 Paul. with Kevin for people that don't know. Kevin Anderson, 2018, got to five in the world and made finals of Wimbledon, and, and uh, that was when I started with Kevin. He was 15 in the world. We're, yep. we're chronologically going off track a little bit, but it's That's funny okay. because you know, yeah. y- you know, obviously doing this, I think taking a player from 15 in the world to five is is an accomplishment that's similar to taking a guy like Starkey from 126 or 128 and finishing 65. Yeah, it's magnified. That, that, that's a yeah. lot more that's a lot more ranking spots. Yes. But it's also a lot harder to go from 15 to 5. Yes. Uh, given the number of points Well, that you if you look if you look at the points difference yes. and the kind of results that it takes to, to go that, to yeah. top it, 5, exactly. yeah. Exactly. So, Kevin, you know, that year in 2018 Prior to that, Kevin had only won three titles in his career, and they were all 250s, which yep. is something that I confronted him about when we first started working together. I asked him why. With your skill set, why have you only won three titles? You haven't beaten the big, big yeah. guys in the big and events. He, and he had yeah. lost, I think he had lost six other finals or something like that okay. at that time. And he, he, to his credit, he said, you know, to be honest with you, I don't think I've handled those situations very well. I've been, I've been nervous. I've been, I haven't played very well in those circumstances. So in 2018, Kevin won three titles that year. He had won three titles in his career prior to that. Right. And he was 33 years old. Yep. So he won three titles in that same year and made the finals of Wimbledon. So you've taught the old dog new tricks. So, yeah, we hopefully. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. Th- but those are my, you know, Darkies in there as one of my, my top accomplishments in my mind, mm-hmm. you know, for, for what we were able to do within his game. It feels a lot better when you like the guy as well. So 100%. You, yeah. You know, I mean, Star- Starkey was a guy that, man, I had so much fun during yep. that period of time that we worked together. Yeah. And, um, and then it was kind of interesting because that's when uh, Jim approached me and asked me to coach him again. 
and that was after the two years of him not speaking to me. Yep. We were okay. actually, it's kind of ironic because we were actually at Jonathan Stark's wedding. Wow. Okay. And, and his, Jim's agent came to me and said, you know, we flew out together and we were talking and Jim was struggling a bit at that time and his yep. ranking had dropped outside the top 20. His agent told me that they were chatting on the flight on the way out and that the agent was the one who says that he said to Jim, you know, planted the seed. You should consider, <laughs> you know, bringing back Brad. And, uh, and he said, I think that's really, you know, the guy that you need. At the wedding, you know, at the reception, we'd all had a few drinks. Helps. Jim literally, <laughs> like I said, Jim literally hadn't been talking to me for a couple of years. And we kind of ended up in just this position where we turned and we're both kind of like Weird. standing <laughs> looking at each other. Yeah. And all of a sudden we started chatting and, you know, just talking about wedding. And we'd been playing golf the day before and stuff okay. or whatever. And at one point, you know, after we were talking for two or three minutes, I said to him, I said, Jimbo. And I'm kind of looking right at him, and I said, it's good to be talking, man. <laughs> and he said, yeah, it is. And, uh, and then he said, you know, we talked for a little bit more, and he said, can I call you next week? And I said, sure, of course. So he called me the following week, and he asked me if I would come out to Florida and, and uh, spend some time. So I started working with him again, talked to Starkey, and asked him if he was okay with, with Jim coming on board and working with the two of them together. At the time, Jonathan said yes. And then the very first tournament that we went to together was, uh, was in Beijing. Jim hadn't won a tournament in, man, 18 months, two years, something like that. Okay. And uh, we had made some serious changes in some footwork things that he was doing, especially running wide to his forehand. Okay. And um, he goes to Beijing and he wins Beijing. Beats two top 10 players to win the tournament. Starkey lost first round <laughs> and had to leave and go to Singapore early. Yep. And we get in and I get to Singapore and John's like, I don't think I want to do this. Share. Yeah. yeah. And so John stopped. Yeah. So kind of tough sometimes, you know, and, and um, yeah. as great a guy as Starkey is, you know, I think his ego got in the way of that. Oh, the jealousy and the bit. ego. Yeah. 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 You yeah. know, and, and I think that it, I think it's always tough. Like, I know you've done it and stuff. So it's, it's tough when you're working with two players. Yep. I don't think you can really work with more than two players. No. But even working with two players can be difficult. You know, there's yes. th these guys being an individual sport, they do have egos at the end of the day they're competing for the same thing yeah it's that's yeah, exactly and so so yeah that became I, you know i stopped with john continued with jim and that became courier two okay so <laughs> so i went with jim from that period until he uh until he retired actually okay so which was an interesting experience for me also because i'd never been with a player obviously a player at his level but I'd never been with any player at he, any level that went through the retirement process. Because Jim also had a period where he was completely burnt out too, right? There's there's a famous yeah. one about him reading the book in the change of ends. Yeah, that was that was prior to all that. That was yeah. actually back in the in the in the Courier One period. Okay. Um, and and that's a very misunderstood scenario, I think. That whole reading the book thing, people misconstrued that um, as being you know, him being disassociated and not caring about what was going sure. on. Yep. It was actually exactly the opposite. He was so frustrated and irritated with his level of play. And that yep. was actually during the, the ATP finals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Yep. So, um, and I had been telling Jose, you know, over f the phone, trying to explain to him that Jim was going through a tough period. And mm -hmm. that he was struggling with a lot of stuff. And mentally and emotionally, he was really frustrated, wasn't happy with his game. And, and um it was funny because Jose went to the ATP finals with him, and after the first round, Jim lost to, I think he lost to uh, Chang in the first round yep. pretty easily. Okay. And uh, Jose called me, and he was like, 
what the hell is going on with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was like, Jose, I've been telling you this. Yeah. You know, and stuff. And so that was the second match that he played there in the okay. round robin event. And um, he got the book out to calm himself down. Mm-hmm. He, he was literally going to kill himself or kill every racket in his bag or, yeah. you know, do something that wasn't going to be very good. Yeah. And if you look back at the match, when he started reading the book, he actually ended up playing better tennis and he won the second set. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then the umpire told him that he had to stop reading the book, I think, if I recall correctly. Okay, okay. Because, the, you know, people were, the ATP, whatever, everybody was yeah. like, this is not the impression yeah. that we want to be giving. Sure. You know, so... <laughs> You're so, not yeah. breaking any rules, but we don't like what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was so that 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 whole scenario was a little bit misconstrued. Sure. You know, as as him not being interested in what was going on. In reality, he was very interested, and he needed to do something to kind of clear his own mind and give himself a chance to actually play better. Right. Which it which it actually did. Yeah. Interesting scenario there. Right. So that's the first one, and the second one, ninety six. Ninety end of 96 i think till 2000 i think jim retired in 2000 got another got another three or four years out of that one i can't remember exactly okay tough period it was interesting because i look back on that period and i know that when we when we started again um he won beijing first tournament out of the box that that we went that was after spending about two or three weeks in florida training together and working on some things and he goes to beijing and he wins beijing and the next event was the next week in singapore Mm-hmm. And basically the same cast of characters playing yep. that tournament in Singapore. And he pretty much dominated in Beijing. Yep. And unfortunately, um, he won singles and doubles in Beijing. And I, I don't know if it was during the doubles. I can't remember. But he kind of tweaked just like a little tiny, tiny bit. He felt something in his quad. Mm-hmm. And the next week, he was in the quarterfinals playing Thomas Johansson, who he had beaten pretty soundly the week before in Beijing. Yep. And... Um, his quad just kind of popped. Okay. And and he was like, man, done. Yeah. And so... And you're done for a little while with a quad yes, too, right? Yes, exactly. And and I look back on that and I think to myself, man, I, I think he was going to win Singapore. Mm-hmm. I think there was a very good chance he was going to win Singapore, win back-to-back yeah. titles. Because a lot of this stuff is a momentum thing, right? 100%. You, you know? think and, about the sliding doors. And, yeah. and the, you know, the adjustments, the changes that we had made in his footwork mm. were some things that lent itself to him you know, playing better tennis and also having a focus yep. of what he was trying to do. Right. I mean, the, the style and the way players were playing Jim at that time had kind of changed. Mm-hmm. Pete Sampras and his old coach, Tim Gullickson, yep. had kind of developed this concept that Jim was, he was the worst that he could be with his forehand from... Moving to his right? Moving to his right yep. and from the due side of the court. And yep. guys had never really honed in on that that much before and all of a sudden they started playing in much more that way yep. and then everybody else started playing in that way yeah. and he had never made any which is the way it works right yes. if one guy does it effectively yeah, and tour, right? everyone's watching okay that's what we do yeah, yeah. so um, and so uh, he he hadn't really made any adjustments in his footwork to that yep. and so you know I wasn't working with him at that time but I was watching this scenario that was going on and how guys were playing him and so when he asked me to come back, we addressed that right away, and we made some changes in that. And, and it kind of reinvigorated his excitement in the game also. It was like something new that he had to like apply to what he was doing in his play. So anyway, I really think that he probably had a very good chance of winning Singapore, back-to-back titles. Yep. Would have been back inside the top 20. I think he would have been actually close to like top 15. And then you know we ended up going home from Singapore because of the injury. Took, yeah. took a couple weeks off. 
came back for Paris Indoors, big tournament. Yep. Went out and played first round and tweaked the quad again. Okay, not ready here. Yeah. And wasn't ready. You know, we thought he was ready and he wasn't ready. Yeah. And I just look at that period, the, the unluckiness really. Jim had never really dealt with very many injuries. He was kind of an Iron Man, honestly. Yeah. Of going to the first four and a half years that I spent together, Jim never missed one match. It was surprising to see him, you know, actually like, like hurt mm-hmm. in those situations. Just disappointing because I felt like, man, he was on track to, you know, I never had the expectation when I went back with him again at that period. And I don't think Jim did either that he would get back to number one necessarily, but we definitely thought that he could get back into the top ten. Yeah. And we thought he could, you know... Have some good wins, beat yeah, the so best guys. Yeah, so we thought he could contend for a slam. Some slams, yeah. You know, yep. that he could at least be deep in a slam and have a chance. Yep. And I think that, you know, we even talked about it at that time, but Jim was very desirous of the idea of winning the U.S. Open. You know, his... Yeah, home slam. His home slam. Been in the finals all the way back in 91. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that was kind of something that we were pointing towards, was trying to, you know, get him to be competitive and deep in like the u.s open right and then those injuries occurred and uh you and just can't build any momentum yeah, it right kinda, like, it just kind of set him back and then it was really weird a, a strange thing happened um we were training in the off season and get, getting ready to go down to australia mm-hmm. and he started having a problem with his arm and we we ended up getting to australia it was the only period of time that jim ever traveled to a physio and part of it was because of this but it, he just had this kind of like it was literally deemed dead arm yep and it was more in his bicep area but he just couldn't generate any force like swinging at the ball wow and okay ended, ended up withdrawing from adelaide withdrawing yep. from sydney withdrawing from the australian open changed rackets he'd been playing with the exact same racket the old pro staff yes. 85, yeah, I mean, the midsize, yeah. Yes, I mean, forever. He played with that racket forever. Yeah. You know, so he changed... Because they, they even tried to paint it for him too, right? <laughs> he wouldn't even do that. No, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so changed rackets a little bit, you know, and and, um, and then that was just a big setback also. And I just look at that period because, like, again, the off-season training he was going great. I mean, really, really good, hitting the ball great and just feeling like, man, he, he's in a position to contend for, for these titles again and stuff, you know? Yeah. And it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen, and that was really unfortunate. Then it was kind of this battle. That one, that that first year was kind of this battle of like messing with this racket and trying to find different things, and we just never really just trying to be a, healthy and yeah, stay on the really court for months, we just right? Never yeah. really got a great flow, mm-hmm. and so it was it was just tough. It was tough for that period, and and then the next couple of years. He was kind of hanging on a little bit, you know, and and wasn't quite as motivated to play. And, and uh, you felt that you saw that. Yeah, a little bit. There was there was a couple different occurrences that happened, and you could just you could just see it, you know. And I think that you know, there's one of two reasons why guys stop playing. You stop playing either because your body won't let you play anymore. Yeah. You know, you still have the will and the desire to want to play, but yep. your, your body just won't let you do it. Or you lose the motivation. You just don't have the desire to get out on the court. And, and the way Jim produced his game and the way he trained took a lot. Yeah. It took a really lot. And more than anything else was the body started to give in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that led to the mind not really being willing to do the other stuff. Yeah, sure. So it was a little bit of a combination of both of those things for Jim. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I think he just kind of lost the desire. Because he, the way he felt that he had to train to produce his game the way he needed to, to be competitive at the top levels, was pretty exhausting. Yeah. And he had gotten to a point where he was kind of tired of doing that. I remember a couple times late, and, you know, he was like, man, I just don't have enough two-on-ones in my legs. Because he used to do two-on-ones like a madman. 
Yeah. You know, and, and he just wasn't doing it as much. Couldn't do it as much. Right. You know, and I kept trying to convince him that he was older. D- don't and need smarter. to do it as much, maybe. Yes. Yeah. You know, train a little smarter and not quite as hard. Yeah. You know, and still be able to maintain all that stuff. But it was just, it was hard for him mentally. He almost, I think he almost felt like he didn't deserve to win if he hadn't done that degree of work. Sure. Okay. You know, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's just how he was. And then, and then obviously, Jim ended up retiring a bit younger than what most people would expect. Yeah. You know. How old was he? I think he was 28. Okay. I think he was, I'm pretty sure he was 28 when he retired. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a little bit early for where most guys are, especially nowadays. Well, yeah, you look now at it's nowadays, been like yeah. Kind of crazy, but, yeah. Um, but, you know, even for then, I think I think the, the typical marker back, you know, when Jim retired was more... 30 to like 32 okay. guys weren't playing too much if you played beyond yeah. 32 or so guys were kind of like wow. it's done to get pretty old yeah you know? yeah so so it, it was a little bit early but um probably the right move you know for him at, at that point you know yeah and, and I, I always remember that you know we had a conversation in memphis um sitting at the peabody hotel having a beer after a loss that he'd had Okay. Like second, yeah. Second or third round. And okay. I, I remember I said to him at the time, Jimbo, I think I think you're ready, because I'd been kind of like trying to talk him out of it for a while. Right. You know, he was kind of bringing it up and saying things, and I was kind of like, you know, no, we can still do it. It's, yeah. yeah. And then in Memphis, I always remember I said to him, I said, I think you're ready. Mm. And he said, he said, why do you say that now? And I was like, well, because he really wanted to be the player that, and he said this to me at one point. Said, I just want to play the way I played back in '93. It's never going to happen again. Yeah, yeah. Jim, different guys, different different situations. Every day is a different, you know. Like, yeah. And I said to him at that night in in Memphis, I said, you know, the only way you can be the guy you were in 1993 is by retiring. Because once you retire, no one's going to care that you lost third round here in Memphis tonight. Yep. It's going to be Jim Courier, former number one player. Jim Four-time Courier, four-time Grand Slam Grand champion. Slam champion yep. Jim Courier, Davis Cup champion. Yep. You know, all the accolades that you deserve mm. and, that, and that you earned in your career yes. are going to be the things that are in the forefront of what people say when they, when they look at you or when they talk about you. Okay. And, and that's the way you can be that guy that, was, that played unbelievable tennis back in 1993. Yeah. You know, and so at that point, and, you know, I think that was what he really wanted. You know, was to was to have that feeling, and so, you know, it wasn't too long after that. We had actually made a plan at that point that he was going to play up to the U.S. Open. Yep. And retire at the U.S. Sure. Open. He ended up stopping after Miami. Yep. And okay. He just, he just couldn't do it. Straight away. He yeah. Just, he just wasn't that interested, and just couldn't like. Yeah. You know, and he didn't want to deal with like. And Miami's only maybe a month, month, month and a half. Month and a half or so after we had that conversation yep. in Memphis. Yeah. And he just, he just, uh, you know. He was losing second or third round, third or fourth round here or there. Yep. You know, but he just, I, he just didn't want to go through the rest of the year like that. Yes. You know, and, and just to try and get to the U.S. Open so sure. that you could make some kind of an announcement. Yeah, right. It wasn't that big a deal to him. Okay. You know, so, so yeah, so he ended up retiring you know, right. at that point. Yeah. And you, I mean, I was going to ask how you felt about it as well, right? So, I mean, because I mean, it's... You're giving a guy pretty big career advice, or end of career advice as well. So probably yeah. you hadn't done that before, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And, it, and it, you have to realize that there were some moments leading up to that that were pretty, um, pretty tough. Yep. Um, in Cincinnati, you know, earlier the year before. So we're talking, what is that? Seven months, eight months earlier. Yep. Um, Jim played a match, and after the match, and he put in a bad effort. 
Yeah. Jim rarely put in bad efforts. Sure. I mean, in all the years I spent with him, I probably saw him put in yeah. two or three bad efforts ever. Yeah. And that was one of them. And afterwards, I went to his room at the hotel and I said, what's up? Like, wh what's happening out there? And he said, well, that was my last match. And okay. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, he said, I decided before the match that was going to be my last match. I'm stopping. And I was like, Jim, like any, you know, it's just kind of weird. Okay. I had no idea. I didn't know what was going on. Yep. I, I drove him to the airport in Cincinnati, which is, if you know the Cincinnati yeah. tournament, you have to drive <laughs> to Kentucky to get to the, to the airport. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's, a, you know, it's about a 45, 50-minute drive, you know, so we chatted a little ways on the way out there. And I always remember, you know, not afraid to say this, but I dropped him off at the, uh, dropped him off at the airport, you know, said goodbye, and uh, got out of the car. And um, that there's a song, you know, that says uh, – take the photographs and something in your mind I can't remember and I was thinking man how like and I actually got a little teary <laughs> yeah I, okay I got a little emotional like driving back you know thinking like man this was the best times of my life yeah you know being with Jim and doing this stuff and it's like it was kind of crazy and and so his uh management company at the time said don't make an announcement okay because we don't think you're ready and after a few weeks you know he called me and he said hey will you come out I want to start playing again and so he, you know, so that we had gone through some phases like that. Okay, yeah. You know, where it was like, obviously it was on his mind. Yep. And it had been there for a while. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was tough to, like, get everything in the right spot. So when I did say that to him, it wasn't like I was being kind of, like, offhanded about it. Yep. You know, it had been something that had been coming on for a while, despite the fact that he was sure. 28 years old. Yeah. I mean, I certainly would have loved to have seen Jim play for another two or three years, mm -hmm. you know, and be competitive. Yes. But... He wasn't being as competitive as he needed to be yep. to satisfy himself. Yep. And so it, it made sense for him to stop at that time. I think, right. You know? right, right, okay. So where do, you, where do you move on to after that? I went home. <laughs> <laughs> I went home for a little while and then um, I got a call from Marty Fish's dad. <laughs> okay. And uh, talked, to, talked to them a couple times and, uh, and I ended up working with Marty for about two years after that started with him when he was about 18 years old yeah so you, you had did, a few phone calls with jim during that time because i was missing jim's commitment and desire in comparison to marty's especially when he was like 18 so, or 19. so you did the part before the netflix documentary before he got serious I, I did. <laughs> I did. the netflix documentary was an interesting uh scenario for me not not taking anything away from what you know what well you know behind the scenes what yeah. fishy's accomplished but, yeah but um yeah i saw marty a little bit before he, you know, recognized what it needed to be done to, for him to, you know, get to be top 10 in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, he was tough. Marty was tough as an 18, 19 year old. Okay. You know, that was a tough, tough job working with him for those couple of years. Talented. Uh, that being said, I had a great, Marty is a very uh, engaging, very charismatic individual. Mm -hmm. um, and he could be really, really fun to be around and be with. It was just tougher on the court. Like, okay. Like his practice ethics and stuff like that at that time weren't great. Yep. And we were trying to push him in that direction. And again, I go back to that. Been a lot of very confrontational <laughs> moments. Yeah. <laughs> um, during that time frame with Marty, you know, and, and uh, but at the same time, I started with him at 365 or something like that in the mm -hmm. world. And when the USTA came in and gave him a free coach, I think he was 105 or something like that. Okay. So in two years. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that was a it was a good period. He had some he had some very good wins during that time. And yep. I, you know I, I really I wanted to continue to work with Marty. I would have mm-hmm. loved to continue to work with Marty. Yep. Um, but you know the the USTA came in and, and they you know I think Marty's dad was kind of in the background making that happen with the USTA. Also. Sure. Yeah. So when they had, when they approached me at the time, the USTA had offered Marty a uh, a coaching situation, but it wasn't one on one. Okay. And they wanted a one-on-one situation. Right. Which, which, you know, I ended up offering that to them and being part of that. Sure. And then once once he got, got the ranking, point, they, they found yeah situation. Yeah. So it was it was you know kind of worked in their favor at that point. Sure. So then you had a bunch of jobs after that as well. A right? bunch. Mm, a few. I hate that. No, I worked with uh, I worked with Taylor Dent after that. Yep. And uh, and like I said earlier, you know Taylor had. We had a great year together, and then and then his dad wanted to work with him, mm-hmm. so we stopped. And then I was very frustrated at that time with the whole um, kind of structure of how, you know, I, basically I was saying to myself, I'm a little bit frustrated and irritated, maybe more than a little bit, <laughs> with the idea of having some 20-something-year-old guy. Be your boss. Be my boss and make decisions that are you know, these kind of frustrating decisions. Yeah. And you can't get, you can't get as far down the development yeah. road as you want to get. Yeah. Right? So I actually, yeah. I actually, when I stopped with Taylor or Taylor stopped with me, I made a decision to go off the tour. Okay. And I actually approached some people, uh, within my community and I ended up starting a junior development program at one of the country clubs where I was. Sure. I had kind of an autonomous position. I was in a position to be able to kind of ask for what I wanted. Yep. And, um, and it was fun. I had a great time doing that with kids. We had, you know, 40 to 50 kids within this program on a daily basis, and it, and it was super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that actually progressed into me becoming the director of tennis at that club. First time I'd ever worked at a club in my life. Sure, okay. Um, hated being the director of tennis. <laughs> and um, I really, I, you know, I, enjoy, I still ran the junior program, which was, you know, I really enjoyed that. But yep. being the director of tennis and having to deal with all the other kind of political stuff that was going on was right. a little bit frustrating. Um, but I think I did a pretty good job of delegating also. Hired a couple other people that you know ran the ladies program and someone right. else that ran like a men's program and i had a guy that i brought in to be like special events to do tournaments and stuff like that so mm-hmm. tried to basically create a team that was covering everything um and it was going pretty well and then i got a call from sebastian grosjean's agent okay out of the blue because i had how, not you know that how long have you been club coaching for at this point year and a half Something okay. like that, maybe. Right. So you're, you're so. a little bit removed, but yeah. people still remember but, and, you. And it's funny because you know this, having been on the tour, that this environment that we're in when we're out on the tour, you know, we're doing this right now in Houston, Texas at the U.S. Clay Court Championships. <laughs> and, but it, it's, it's kind of a, if you don't see people. Out of sight, out of mind. Completely out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way the tour kind of is. Yep. And, and so during that time frame, the, the natural progression that you go through when you're out of a job on the tour is that you call your contacts at the management companies. Yep. You've got to know some agents. Mm-hmm. So you call, you call an agent at IMG and you call an agent at CAA and you call an agent at you know, whoever, all the, all the different management companies that you know, yeah. <laughs> as many contacts, because those guys have way more contacts than you do yep. to other agents and they'll put out a, you know, an email within their organization telling everyone that, so-and-so is looking for a coaching gig. Yep. 
Well, I hadn't done that. I basically did it on purpose. I just said I'm not interested in being back on the tour. Yeah. And, and so I hadn't called a single agent, hadn't made an effort in any way, shape, or form mm-hmm. to be on the tour at that point. Mm-hmm. So when I got the call from Sebastian's agent, I, I was kind of like... <laughs> Why? How? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it just seemed a little bit out of context in a way. Sebastian was living in Florida for the entirety of his career. And he actually, his agent told me that he was looking for something with a little different perspective. He wanted something outside the norm. He also knew I speak French. So of course he, you do. Yeah. he knew that I at least spoke French. Okay. I'm not French. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't have that same French mentality necessarily, but, sure. I, but I speak French. Yeah. So he asked me if I would be willing to come out and spend a couple of weeks doing a trial period with Sebastian. And I said, yeah. And um, so we went out and spent a couple of weeks. And then I worked with him for about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. quarterfinals at Australia, semis at Wimbledon. I was about to say, people might remember him from yeah. the run in Australia. Yeah. Him and Clement had yeah, the run. Yeah, that was in before it. my time period. Oh, okay. Yeah. But he was, uh, I mean, Seb, it's funny, great guy. I mean, to this day, just like we have a really good relationship. And, mm-hmm. you know, he messages me every year on New Year's Eve and says, like, Happy New Year and stuff. You yeah, know, yeah. And, like, uh, just a super, super nice guy. And I can't tell you during that time frame how many people would come up to me and say, oh, man, you coach Sebastian Grosjean. He's my favorite player. Yeah. <laughs> I love that guy. Yeah. You know, and, and it was true because, you know, he's a little fire yeah, running around. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. He was just fun to watch, yep. you know. And so, uh, so, yeah, so I spent that time with him. And uh, that was a good period. Seb, a little bit later in his career. And when we stopped, I always remember it was funny because – the U.S. Open towards the end of the year when we stopped, he was not pushing himself super hard to prepare. <laughs> sure. I kind of, I kind of uh, got into him a little bit at this one practice, like mm-hmm. while we were out practicing, and he didn't appreciate the, kind of the way I presented it to him. Okay. <laughs> he called me a few months later before the off season was going to start, and just said, just said, you know, I'm going to play one more year, and that's going to be it. Yep. And he said, I'm, I'm, he said, I know that you know, for you that you're really pushing and you want me to do all the right things and, you know, all this other stuff. And he said, he said, look, I'm just not there. I said, he said, honestly, I'm just going to play this last year and I'm, I'm just going to try and have fun and just enjoy myself. Okay. You know, and he so said, not so much for you to do no, in that year. Exactly. Yeah. And so he said, you know, I, I just don't think it makes sense for us to, and so we, you know, we split up on very, very, uh, amicable Good terms. terms. Yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, I mean, to this day, like every time I see Seb, we, you know, stop and chat for half an hour or something, you know, and, mm-hmm. and everything. So great guy. I mean, a super good guy. Yeah. So, yeah. So I stopped with him and then I started running my academy after that. Okay. Back I, in uh, Fresno again? Yeah. I started, I actually started my own like little academy at the absolute worst club in Fresno. <laughs> we have like five clubs in Fresno and this one is like, it's run down and beat up. And like, I had an after school program that we had about 35 to 40 kids in that was just like local kids. Yep. And then we had, an, we called our elite training group. Mm-hmm. That I think at its peak, we had about 16 players in. Okay. But we had some very good players. We actually had some very good Elite players. training group is during the day in, in America normally, right? Elite training group were guys that were doing more homeschooling. Yep. We had a house in town where we housed some of the guys okay. if they needed housing. Yep. We had some local guys that were actually very good players. Yep. We put a lot of guys, virtually every guy that came and trained there played. Uh, at least D1 college, right? At least right? D1. Yep. And some, I mean, we put a guy in at UCLA. We put a guy that got to be top 10 in collegiate tennis. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were they were good players. They were good players. I always remember it's funny because going back to Kalamazoo, yeah. you know, like we talked about before, 
I was at Kalamazoo one year with, with guys from the academy, and somebody came up to me and they said, man, how many guys do you guys have here? Yeah, at yeah, the, uh, yeah. And I was like, I don't know. Yeah. I actually didn't know. You know, yeah. it's just like just all the guys that we could get in, we got in. Yeah, I did some coaching in Austin. We got four or five guys to we, Kalamazoo at we, once, and we, we thought that was pretty good. We yeah? had nine. Yeah. We had nine guys. Yeah. Out of our 16, we had nine guys that yeah. played Kalamazoo in either 18s or 16s. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I just thought, well, no big deal. Yeah. Well, We're just training these guys, and this is what they're doing. Yeah, that was one of the first things I did in coaching as well, and we did it at high school courts in, in Austin, <laughs> Texas. Yeah. So, well, that was yeah. one of our sales pitches, honestly, to the guys was like, look, if you can practice and train and compete well here yeah. at this dump, yeah. then you're, you're fine anyway. Everywhere yeah. you're going to go play tournaments is going to be nicer than, than this. here. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. But I, that was actually that was actually a really really fun period for me. I yep. really enjoyed all the kids that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a few headaches here and there, like you always do. Yeah, of course. And and stuff. But it but it was really enjoyable. I mm-hmm. really enjoyed the the guys that we worked with. Um, still stay in touch with a number of them. Yeah. You know, and and um, I really had a fun time during that period. Yeah. And I had some couple guys that helped me out in the program that you know were good buddies of mine prior to that and then after that we're just like you know it was great and then from there did you find your way back to the tour again i went to the usta okay so jay berger contacted me and asked me about uh taking a position with the usta this is a united states tennis association yeah yeah at that time you know now the usta has a national training center and it's a Mm -hmm. different kind of scenario and a different program and i had been approached a few times in the past about that i was just in a much different place in my life now sure so now we're all the way up to, uh, man, 2014. Okay. I went to work for the USTA starting in October of 2014. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so I felt a little bit bad for the academy situation. Mm-hmm. Although I, I actually did turn the academy over to somebody that I thought was going to do a very good job. Um, turned out. Didn't meet your expectations. Didn't quite go as well as I thought it was going to, but sure. But um, yeah, so that was a little bit disappointing, you know, just from the standpoint of all the kids that I had there and everything. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, and and I I moved to Florida. I had never moved for a job before. Okay. You know, I'd always lived in the. I I, I jokingly, this is a joke when I say I, I'd always lived in the garden spot of tennis in, <laughs> in Fresno, California. <laughs> okay. Fresno's definitely not the garden spot of. So tennis. Florida, where were you? Boca Raton. Boca, yeah. We started yeah. in Boca. That was when the training center was. You know, they had an agreement with uh, Everett Tennis Academy. Sure, I was there last week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so they had access to the courts there and the USTA center, and they had dorms there and everything. Yep. And that was they had started that program. And you know, maybe I've gotten smarter over the years, but one of the reasons that I actually did want to take that job was because I, I did have a, a feeling that I wanted to kind of try and get back on tour at some point. Yep. I'd kind of like, like we said, out of sight, out of mind. So I kind of like separated myself a little bit from the tour in running my academy. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of had this objective almost of going there and, and being able to create an association and a relationship with this next generation of players. Yeah, you got a lot of young guys coming through your door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, which I was absolutely able to do. I would not, yeah. I mean, I, Tommy Paul and Riley Apelka and Francis Tiafu and Taylor Fritz and those guys didn't know me at all until yeah. I went to work for the USTA. Okay. You know, and, and I was lucky enough that... Uh, one of my other mentors who I, I didn't get a chance to, to go to, but uh, Tom Gullickson was working at the UST at that time. Right. And, yep. and Gully and I are very close. Yep. And, um, you know, 
Gully, I was lucky to know Gully and have Gully be there because, you know, these guys would all be like, you know, you got Apelka and Tommy and stuff. They're pretty cocky juniors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like, who's this Stein guy? Where <laughs> yeah. did he come from? Like, yeah. And Gully would be like, hey, guys, that guy coached the number one player in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they would be like, oh, really? Give you, buys you some credibility, yes. right? Yeah. So you get a little bit of uh, instant credibility from yeah. that standpoint. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and then, so I was there from 2014 until the off season of 2017. And then I got a call from... Brad Dancer, the men's tennis coach at the In University of Illinois. Illinois yep. Kevin Anderson's uh, alma mater. Sure. And uh, he was fishing around for for a. It was funny because when Brad called me, he said, "You know, any coaches you could recommend okay. for working with Kevin." The roundabout way of asking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I actually named like three or four coaches, and then I said to him, "I said, well, Brad, what about me?" And he said. Yeah, that's actually kind of why. That's I was the one I was you. hoping you would say. Yeah. <laughs> so it was funny, and at that time, we had uh, we had a gentleman. I, I use that term loosely, but that was uh, running. He was in charge of men's tennis for the USTA, and okay, and I, and I really did not want to continue to work in that environment. Okay, that was there. So um, I was very, very, very happy that Kevin contacted me. Yep. And um, so yeah, so I I took couple days during the off season mm-hmm. kind of snuck away from we were in Orlando at that point they had built the National Training Center in Orlando and I drove down to Delray Beach and spent a couple days on the court with Kevin and a um, guy that he'd been involved with for a super long time Jay Bosworth yep and then after those two days Kevin contacted me and said hey I'd like to hire you full-time okay and we worked out the details of that that was you know we did the rest of the off season a couple more weeks and then we started traveling together and 2018 was a pretty amazing year you know, for Kevin and for me, and yep. um, and it really put me back in the in the forefront. You know, you, mm-hmm. you you say that out of sight, out of mind. It was insight in mind. Yeah, I remember when you got hired because yeah. one of my buddies was actually also in contention for that job. Okay. Was was going to do it if you didn't do it? Actually, yeah. so yeah. So um, yeah, so you know, and we started off we started off on a pretty good foot. He made the finals of uh, uh, the tournament in India. Uh, Pune. Pune. Yeah. Early on, that was the very first actual tournament. He actually won the. Did you go to Pune? I did. Two years in a row. <laughs> wow. You I, went, no, I'm actually went? I'm actually wrong about that. He lost in the finals the first year we went. Okay. The second year he won it. Yeah. And uh, but he'd also won the Abu Dhabi. Okay. The, uh, that uh, exhibition that goes on in Abu Dhabi. Yep. Before Pune, so okay. he, he won that event. Had some good wins there against yep. some really top guys. Australia didn't go great. Lost five sets to Kyle Edmund. Yeah. I think that might have been first round. The year that Kyle made semis. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. But then you know, I mean, everything. It's funny how, you know, it's it such a process within tennis you need those kind of matches to learn things i learned a lot from watching kevin play that match against kyle edmund and and uh really addressed a number of things within his game that i think i believe strongly led to the success that we had through the rest of 2018 sure. yeah um primarily from that one match yep. to be honest with you because kevin at that time was an extremely patterned tennis player Kyle Edmund was working with uh, a guy named Fred Rosecrans, who's a very, very good yeah. coach. Been around forever on the tour. Yep. And I think, you know, Fred had obviously done his homework going into that match. Yeah, they have support from the LTA too, so they get yeah. stats. And, yeah. and he had picked Kevin's game apart and, mm. and basically knew where Kevin was going to hit the ball before Kevin did. Yep. And, um, and Kyle was, you know, just waiting on balls. Yep. And, uh, and so, you know, as big as Kevin's game is, you know, but that, that match really 
it was a lesson. Mind. Yeah, it was a lesson for yeah. me about what he needed to do to try yeah. and be a little bit better. And, and then it took a little bit of time to convince him mm-hmm. to make yeah. to make that happen. But he he then went, you know, to Indian Wells and made quarters. Yep. And then to to um, Miami made quarters. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a solid result. Yeah, very solid results, and just kept getting a little bit better and a little bit better. And, and this is this is almost the opposite now. What you're talking about with Jim at the end of his yeah. career, you yeah, can't exactly. where you can't get anything going. This is staying healthy and building, yeah. and one yeah. week to the next, to the next, to the next. Yeah. And in 2018, the staying healthy part was big. Kevin only yep. missed, I think, one event that entire year yep. uh, due to any kind of health issue. Yeah. Which was big for him because if you looked at his career, mm-hmm. um, he hadn't really played full seasons yep. uh, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So, so that was a, I don't know if it was luck or what the situation was, but he you know he, he played ninety nine percent of that year, you know, relatively injury free. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you get you get the big highs, obviously, as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So you know, one like I said, won three titles, won a five hundred, which he had never won a five hundred before. Yep. Finals of uh, sit in the big box for the final of Wimbledon. It's yeah. a pretty special place to be. Yeah. Beat, beat Roger, you yeah. know, in the quarters, and then uh, and then the match that changed the system at Wimbledon. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, against John Isner in the semis, yeah, twenty six twenty four in the fifth, mm-hmm. um, which was my favorite story out of the twenty six twenty four was that I think at like twenty two or twenty three all there was some guy at the top of the stands that yelled out. Come on, guys! We just want to oh see Rafa. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I and mean, it yeah. was like it was like the epitome of why they needed to change the system. Yeah, so you've, you know, seen, you've like, seen something that you'll never see again, right? Yeah, so. I think I think the longest one I had I had one out at Roehampton doubles, eighteen sixteen in the first seven six six seven eighteen sixteen. Yeah. No chairs out at Roehampton. Had to. <laughs> I stood for four hours. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, pretty cool. And so I guess after Kevin brings you back to Tommy. Yep, and then we go back to where we started talking about before from 2019. You know, where we Tommy met for the first time, yeah. Kerry, Kerry, yeah. North Carolina. Exactly, you, yeah. were, you were with Enzo. Enzo Coco. Enzo Quaco. Quaco, oh jeez. Yes. And I speak French. Yeah, there you go, yeah. I've he, never known how to pronounce his name Even the French exactly. get his name wrong there too. You go. So he's yeah. actually from Mauritius. So yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, so you got an excuse there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing to ask you: Why do you keep doing what you're doing? You, I'm, well, I so, told you at the beginning because I'm too dumb to do anything else. Well, you could do a lot of things within tennis now. You, you're, <laughs> you're commentating. I am, you're yeah. doing other things. You could be consulting. There's a lot of guys in your position. You know, want to spend more time at home and. I mean, I see you out here on the road almost as much as I am. Yeah, and I think I'm, if not the, I might be, I'm one of one or two or three of the oldest coaches on tour now. You know, it's a lifestyle. You know this. Mm. We, we get, it's also a bit of a drug. The competition, the, the matches that are played, you know, despite the fact that you're obviously not playing them. It, it still feels good when you guys win. It's the closest <laughs> thing you can get to competing within the sport. And it feels really bad when you guys lose too. hundred yeah. percent. It should. Yeah. It should. You know, I, I went through I went through a period of time, partly when I was with the USTA, I think, where it didn't matter so much. Yeah, unfortunately the the losing wasn't hurting that much. I actually always remember I, I spent a stint on the grass with Austin Krychek. Okay. Uh, through the USTA. I was working for our collegiate division at the time, and Austin was a former college player, so he fell under our responsibilities. I wonder. And, and, um, did he play last round qualies that year? No. He didn't okay. win a match on the grass. 
Okay. I went with him, and you know, the goal was to try and get him to qualify at Wimbledon and and to get him close to cracking top hundred. Because he he was my guy's partner in that eighteen sixteen in the third that year no at Wimby Qualies. That's yeah, funny. yeah, yeah. So he, I mean, when he lost at Wimbledon in Qualies, I remember we went and we were in the the village, Wimbledon Village, at the Dog and Fox. Anyone that's been there knows sure. where the Dog and Fox is. Yeah. And uh, we were having a couple of beers. It was the end of the trip. And, yeah. and, uh, and I, I held my beer up for a little toast, and I said to him, I said, Crouch, I want to thank you for making losing hurt again. Because like, I, really, yeah. I really felt like, I mean, anyone that knows Austin Krychek, he's a great guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had spent, I don't know, six or eight weeks on the road together. And, yeah. and I was really, really, really just wanting him to perform well, you yeah. know, and to get wins. And, yeah. and we were just struggling. Because you know he's good matches. enough, too. He actually got to top 100 as well, right? He did top 100. Yeah. You know, he, did, he did finally, like, I don't know, a few months after that. It, I know it happened in Tokyo. He won a couple matches in Tokyo, and that mm-hmm. finally got him in the top 100. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just remember saying, you know, like, thanks for making it hurt again. Mm. because it did yeah you know because you care about the guy yeah and like you said before i mean that's part of the job you know is that you you become committed to the guys and there's a relationship there that that you you know sometimes i think for us as coaches we feel closer to the players than they necessarily feel to us yeah yeah. (laughs) we want to think that they feel the same way yeah but they don't always yes correct yeah um but but yeah i mean you put a lot of time and energy and effort into trying to make them better players and and potentially depending on the situation how old they are when you start working with them trying to make them better people mm-hmm. and uh and so you know you, you uh you want it to hurt when they lose yeah for sure yeah you know? so it's it's always funny because i think in sports in general regardless of what sport you're involved in when you're at this level and even when you're at lower levels the winning is never quite as exciting as you would like it to be and doesn't last like the the high doesn't seem to last quite as long as when you lose. Mm-hmm. The lows are lower than the highs are high a yeah, lot of the time. The lo- for me, I think most of the time the losses hang around until the next win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like <laughs> there's there is an old saying, you know, in tennis, you're only as good as your last loss. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that and that's not entirely untrue. You know? Yeah. And, it, and the other thing is that unless you've actually won a tournament, which we we had the. We had the luck of Tommy winning the last tournament of the year last year. Stockholm. So he wins Stockholm, and yeah. we literally had a yeah. month and a half. All preseason. Like, yeah. Like, I'm a winner. <laughs> we finished the year as yeah. winners, you know. But in yeah. general, you know, it's like I'll give you a great example. You know, Tommy just played Indian Wells, and he beats Sasha Zverev, mm-hmm. number three player in the world, the highest ranked player that, that Tommy's beaten so far. Yeah. And he's got, you know, one day off. Mm. And you've got to be getting ready. You're already, yep. you know, it's already like, hey, we got to put that behind us. Yes. And then he loses, you know, to Alex Deminar. Yeah. Great player. Yeah. But, but you, you know, your expectations after beating. Uh, beating Zverev, you think you can beat anyone in the tournament. And yeah. so it's, and so it's, uh, it's a very short-lived high sometimes. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. When, when you win those matches. And, and the match with, the match with Alex yep. then sticks with you until the next tournament. Correct. You know, Correct. So, so yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough sometimes, but I, at the same time, you know, I think a lot of us that stay out here stay out here because um, we do like to compete, mm-hmm. and, and we we enjoy the guys that we're with, and uh, you know, it's become. I mean, a lot of my closest relationships with people are on the tour. 
Yep. You know, and I, and it's always a weird situation because I love being at home and I, and I I have great situations at home and my kids all live where I live so I get to see them when I go home and, mm-hmm. and I, I love that but but at the same time you don't see a lot of your friends. Yep. Unless you're actually on the tour. Yes. So so it's kind of this weird balance that you go through trying to figure all that stuff out how long can you be home for before you start to get restless i mean you know the pandemic was good for actually training yourself to uh to be home for a lot longer new hobbies did you get new hobbies you and i've talked about this because you're a big cyclist so i started cycling a lot during the pandemic okay you know because you could obviously get out on a bike in melbourne that was not allowed Oh wow! Yeah, we had for a yeah, long I know time. Yeah, you weren't allowed to go more than five kilometers from your house, right? Correct. You could have ridden around your house like three hundred times. No, because you, you had one hour a day for exercise. Okay. Well, so it was pretty. So you could have gotten a hundred times around. Pretty your house. tough. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah. It would have been like a NASCAR. You could have just kept making left-hand turns. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, we were lucky enough in uh, in California, and I and I do have a young player that is from where I'm from. He's actually a member at the same club that I'm a member at. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, when the club was closed down, we would climb over the back fence and <laughs> and train at the club. Sneak a few balls. Yeah. yeah. And then actually, we got in trouble for that a little bit and, and uh, found a private court that's in our neighborhood, same neighborhood that we both live in. And, and uh, so I, I actually got a chance to hit quite a bit during the pandemic mm-hmm. and uh, and cycling here and there and stuff, you know, and yeah. everything. So I said to someone that... I feel like I'm built for pandemics because <laughs> I, I didn't really feel that stressed out about, you know, sure. not one, not traveling and two, spending a lot of time on your own yep. and stuff like that. So, yeah. So what's next? We have the, the rest of the clay court season coming up. We have mm-hmm. a couple of weeks off now. Mm-hmm. Tommy lost here in Houston yesterday to another Aussie. Yeah. Nick Kyrgios. Yeah. Singles and doubles. Singles and, no, he lost, yeah, he lost singles and doubles, not both to Nick Kyrgios. No, but yeah. Yeah, he did lose singles and doubles yesterday. So Tommy's heading home. And he'll have a, uh, a couple of weeks at home training on the clay. I'm probably going to go. I am going to go home for sure. You go to your home. Tommy goes yeah, to I'm his home. Yeah, I'm in home. California and Tommy's in Florida. I may come out for a few days before we head over to Europe. But, but he's playing uh, Estoril in Portugal. Mm-hmm. And then Madrid, Masters 1000, Rome. Maybe the week before the French, Geneva. If we, if we depending on what the results are, maybe take sure. that week off and then Paris. Yeah, nice. It's a long swing, that swing. You know that because we're going to go play. And then Tommy didn't get a chance to play the grass last year because he had a foot injury. Right. So he didn't play any grass at all. Yeah. And he hasn't played very much grass in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest with you, you know, anyone that's seen Tommy play in the last number of months, I mean, I've been making an effort to, to build a game around him sure. that translates well to playing on grass. Mm-hmm. It also translates well to playing on the other surfaces, especially yep. hard and indoors. Yep. But um, but I'm really excited to to go see how you know he performs on the grass given the the skill set that he's now playing at. I, I would say that Tommy is you know serving and volleying as much or more than most of the guys on the tour, other than Maxime Cressy. Yeah. Um, but uh, and coming forward off returns and doing other things that I think are going to lend themselves to him performing well on the grass. Things he wasn't doing a couple of years ago. Yeah, exactly. You know, so we may end up going straight through the rest of the clay and the grass, which could end up... You do it Australian style. Eight, yeah. or, eight or ten weeks. Yeah, I guess you can't complain about being on the road for too long. Uh, Australians, we, talking to Australians. Most Australians, we skip most of the clay, show, <laughs> show up at the French Open, and then go straight to the grass. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, so that's the rest of our schedule. You know, like we're going to try and play as much grass as we possibly can. Tommy even mentioned recently about uh, maybe playing Newport. 
Okay. Which I'm always a big fan of. Okay, nice. So nice. I've never been to Newport. Oh, uh, you gotta go. Yeah, I hear amazing things about the club and terrible things about the courts. Yeah, but the courts, they change the courts. <laughs> okay. The courts are much improved. Okay. So, and it all depends, like, you know, the courts performed like, you know, Wimbledon did in the 1970s. Yeah, so, okay. So you basically didn't want to let a ball bounce. Yeah. So if you look at the guys that have won Newport historically, it's been guys that are that are very really attacking good. style tennis players. Yeah, yeah. Rajiv so Ram. Yeah. Gilles Muller. Yeah. You know, won Newport yes. and stuff. You know, last year was the first year they completely dug the courts up and redid the courts from the ground up. Okay. And I heard that they actually are quite good now. Okay. So so we'll see. Time to go find out. Yeah, time to go find out. Well, Brett Stein. Thank you very much. It was great to have you on. I have to listen back to that one and make sure I can learn learn a bit more about what I'm meant to be doing. Yeah, we'll see. I appreciate it, man. All right, thanks a lot. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.